Welcome to the 12th Womanthology Podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. And welcome to the first show of 2021. We're recording this remotely from back in lockdown in the UK. It's been a tough few months and we're back to staying in and staying strong. But we've got some exciting new plans for the year ahead, which we'll be revealing in future episodes. Meanwhile, the theme of today's show is women of colour. I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Amberly Banerjee, Director of Global Regulatory Affairs at GSK, who talks me through her personal thoughts on equity, inclusion and diversity, as well as explaining the idea of overlapping social identities and what is meant by the term intersectionality. We'll also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's Associate Editor, who's going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. A quick reminder that you can sign up to the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of the website. So that's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our new LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Okay, so Amberly Banerjee, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to have you on the show. Let's get into the questions. So could you tell us about your educational background and career to date? Sure. So thank you for inviting me initially, uh, Fiona. So I actually grew up in India and I moved to the UK when I was 13. And uh, the first few years were a bit tough. So I actually accidentally ended up doing a biochemistry degree only because I couldn't decide what to choose. Um, And um, I did a PhD straight after my biochemistry degree and actually spent about nine years in academia doing academic research. Somewhere along the journey, I thought, oh, industry seems interesting. Let me try and get into industry, but actually really struggled. I mean, they kept telling me I'm too much of an academic and really struggled to get in. And then um, coincidentally found a colleague who uh, was working in business development with industry and who advised me on uh, a route in basically. And I I came into GSK about 13 years ago, just um, again, came into GSK with no pharma experience, no regulatory experience, straight into regulatory affairs and have really enjoyed my career at GSK. So everything from working in a local company, kind of uh, understanding the commercial pressures and then uh, moving into regional roles as head of EU and EMAP uh, about seven, eight years ago, and then moving into very R&D focused roles, looking at our research pipeline and what products are coming through. So I've had quite a varied career in uh, different parts of GSK and really enjoyed it really to date. Um, The latest role is working on our HIV products, uh, a little bit on governance activities. Um, and and really understanding what makes our products, you know, what we have to do to keep them safe on the market. Fantastic. So on a day-to-day basis, if we were trying to imagine Amberly at work, what sort of things should we imagine you doing? Well, the great thing is there is no typical day. <laughs> so I work, at, almost everybody in, in a pharmaceutical company works in what I call matrix teams. So we work on different projects along with a whole bunch of people. So um, 
currently, you know, as I mentioned, I'm uh, doing governance activities. So I'm working with a group. We might have product issues cropping up. So we'll get together from different functional areas and look at our product and see how we can improve that product. It might be trying to improve our, our standard ways of operating. So we might work on um, understanding how we can improve our internal processes to make them sleeker, quicker. Uh, we might look at, um, you know, working on people's development programs. So no day or no hour really is that similar. Um, also, uh, within the company, I've taken on in the, over the last couple of years, a bigger role in um, supporting our employee resource group on race and ethnicity. So I became the co-lead of our Embrace Employee Resource Group about 15 months ago. Uh, and as part of that, my job is to work with different teams again on different events we might be putting together. Or one day we might be working with leaders on trying to understand what GSK is doing and how we can really accelerate that journey to equity for everyone, basically, within the organization. So it's, it's a very diverse, interesting role. How would you say your role has been impacted by COVID-19? <laughs> So I think um, we all switched to remote working in, in March as, as much as possible. You know, only the people who are working on manufacturing side who are classified as critical workers are actually going into the office in the UK. Um, the vast majority of people based in the UK are working remotely. So that has significantly impacted our day to day in terms of, you know, we're not going into the office. But otherwise, we're we're lucky in that. Uh, you know, it's working for an industry that um, still has a job during this pandemic. So I consider myself extremely blessed to be in this industry and and having a job at present, um, especially considering the huge pressures on the economy that we are seeing at, at present. Um, also during COVID, I think partly because we've all been at home and had uh, more attachment to our devices, some of those racial disparities have really come to light. You know, so George Floyd's murder was televised, obviously. Uh, everyone saw what, what these um, atrocities that are going on uh, that have been happening for years. And it sparked a conversation, right? So my hat of being an employee resource group lead, um, that really came to light uh, much more, became a much more significant role within the company in terms of really accelerating those conversations and driving actions. So we really started having uh, a lot more focus on what should GSK be doing in light of these, these issues really coming to the fore in terms of people really demanding action. So we've started really uh, working in a, in a much more accelerated fashion towards actions. So it's been um, interesting times, more high pressure during these times. We're, we're all um, stretched a bit more. It's a bit more, bit more uh, on our plates than we normally would have. Back in September, you spoke at the Future of Work Summit in London about harnessing the Black Lives Matter movement, as you've referred to. You spoke about reality, equality and equity. Could you give us an overview of what was covered? Sure, sure. So actually, the Future of Work Summit was actually, that particular event was more of a workshop. It was bringing some experts in the field and, and opening it up to those who are interested in talking about this and really understanding what we collectively can do about addressing equity. So what we're talking about is really what is the difference between equity and equality and what is the reality today? And the reality is that um, there are many groups that face the same problem of discrimination. 
So there are many groups, whether it's uh, women, whether it's the LGBTQ community, the disabled community, the older population, people from a social mobility issue, or people from different races and cultures, we all face the same common enemy, which is discrimination. People have certain stereotypes and they immediately assume that you fall within that stereotype. And then there's a danger associated with it because stereotypes are generally negative. They're not generally positive. So you end up having biased decision-making creeping in. So what we were uh, really focused on is trying to bring this to the fore in terms of uh, why, why should we address bias? Because bias will stand in the way of us progressing towards equity. And people tend to not really understand that concept of equity, particularly, and uh, because equality is giving everybody the same thing, right? So you, you kind of say, okay, ev everyone can uh, work nine to five, and that should suit everybody because that's, you know, uh, uh, fit for purpose. But actually, equity is not that. Equity is making adjustments. So where people are disadvantaged by, by uh, a, a circumstance that you put the right things in place. So for instance, for gender, where women had to have maternity leave and how dare we pay women while they're not even coming to work, right? And yet, um, we put maternity pay in place. How did that actually advantage other people? Because of maternity pay, you also have parental leave, special leave, all of those things came into effect, carers leave, etc. Similarly, you brought in flexible working to accommodate working mothers. Now, if we didn't have flexible working in place, look at the mess we'd be in right now. You know, the reason the world can operate remotely is because we facilitated that through a lot of women wanting flexible working. So a lot of these measures that we put in place to help uh, a, a minority population actually ends up helping much more than that population. And that's the key message with race. Um, what we're talking about is with racial disparities, generally it's because uh, people from ethnic minorities don't have the same connections or the same confidence. A lot of um, folks could have more disadvantaged background uh, from a lower socioeconomic uh, background. So they have more barriers. They may not get access to the right schools. They may not have access to the right mentors. They may not go to the top universities because they haven't had that guidance. And therefore, if you are, as an employer, only hiring from the top institutions, you won't get that racial diversity. So in order to address the balance, you've actually got to look at where is it going wrong. And actually, the best starting point is look at your data. You know, if you look at your data and you see that we haven't got good representation compared to your local market. So if you're in the UK, in, if you're headquartered in London and you have 40% of the population in London is from a black and ethnic minority background, right? And now if your internal population in the UK doesn't reflect that or, or in London doesn't reflect that population, then somehow there's something going wrong in your hiring processes. You're not getting them in, to the, in through the door. Now, once you get them in, are they progressing at the same rate as everybody else up the ladder? And what we find, and this is across most companies across uh, the UK, not just uh, GSK. Um, there are many companies where you see that black and minority ethnic people stall halfway through the, the career ladders. You know, there's a particular manager sort of level that people don't progress 
even progressing to manager is hard, but beyond that becomes very, very hard. Um, and so you have to ask, why is that? And that generally stems from people thinking, oh, I don't see a lot of black and brown faces when I sit around a leadership table. Would these, these people actually be fit for a leadership role? They might be okay to do the, the grunt work, but are they actually fit to do the leadership role? And so there's a bit of nervousness because they don't really know, you know, they've not worked with somebody like that. And that's purely bias talking, right? That's because they're not used to working with somebody from that background. So the only way to make that, that development journey for people, that career progression fairer, is to bring in tools and processes that make the process fairer. So by bringing in blind recruitment, where you can take away the name from CVs, the name and the educational institution. So you assess people on what they've done in their career, not on their name, right? A name doesn't really change what that person is capable of. Similarly, in the interview process, if you have a mixed bunch of people interviewing, we know that people tend to hire people in their own image. So if you have only a Caucasian board of people interviewing, you're likely, you're much more likely to hire somebody that has a similar background to you or who reminds you of a younger you, you have a mixed group, you're less likely to do that. So it's those kinds of tools that you can bring in to kind of change it. So we were discussing at uh, Future of Work the, the kind of structural things that we need to address. And we had some great representation from the BITC business in the community, from um, the, the investing in ethnicity, which is again, trying to bring together many corporates in order to really change the ethnicity dialogue. And there were representatives from different companies in different sectors. So it was really, how can we collectively amplify the message of equity and move in a really quick way to, to that outcome? How well do you feel the concept of intersectionality and overlapping social identities and their influence on people's careers is really understood in the workplace? I, I think we still have a long way to go. So if I give you an example, you know, when they uh, initially set up boards and things in companies to look at gender, for instance, you know, a lot of companies have councils and things looking at uh, equity. When they set up things to look at gender, they tend to have a 50% um, male, 50% female ratio, which is great. But generally that tends to be 100% Caucasian, which seems wrong because just because you're looking at gender, you've forgotten that there are women from other ethnicities that are also facing exactly the same problems, right? In fact, they're facing the race discrimination and the gender discrimination. So it's almost a, a double whammy. And it's, it's similar, you know, whether they have, they're looking at LGBTQ and they again consider um, making changes with senior leaders that don't have that representation who might understand that point of view from an intersectional perspective. So um, at GSK, we're trying to do much more intersectionally. So we are trying to enforce that um, way of thinking in the different councils that we have to make sure that they are thinking intersectionally and, and not in a very siloed way. And similarly, our employee resource groups are working hand in hand. So all of us have agreed that the common enemy is bias. So we are trying to like bring our members together trying to be allies to each other. We're trying to kind of put together events which highlight the problems with discrimination 
and trying to hold our leaders to account with driving similar actions. You know, how do we sort out our hiring processes? How do we how do we sort out our um, our, our progression, our promotion processes? So the right kinds of things are prioritized. So so that's how we can address intersectionality. But there's a long way to go because there's still very much siloed thinking in a lot of companies. With intersectionality, the other thing that we hear quite frequently is people saying, let's deal with one problem and then we'll move on to the other. So, you know, let's deal with a gender problem because we haven't quite solved that. And absolutely, we haven't solved it, but we've made some progress. And I kind of feel that's a bit like telling me, you know, as a woman, I can I can come in with my ovaries, but I need to leave my skin at the, at the gate. Doesn't work that way, right? Absolutely so not. <laughs> you, you absolutely have to take that whole individual into account. And you can't just address one aspect of somebody's personality or someone's character. It has to be their entirety. So you have to look at this in a joint up way. Otherwise, we're going to be talking about equity for hundreds of years. We've barely made any progress in the last few hundred years. We've got to accelerate this so that we can fix this in our lifetime. You know, as as a mother of a 15 year old, I don't want my daughter to be facing the same challenges in another 15 years. So obviously we had the gender pay gap reporting that was mandated by government, but obviously that's currently on hold because of the pandemic. So not quite sure about what message that sends, but it's on hold for the moment. So hopefully that will come back. But do you think that we should be doing that across ethnicities as well? Great question. Actually, there were proposals put forward for ethnicity pay gap reporting. And there was a a proposal almost drafted, almost ready to be signed off. So if that seems to have stalled and the government again have deprioritized it, which I think is totally the wrong thing, especially when we know there are racial disparities. So absolutely, ethnicity pay gap is something we should be looking at. And we will find a pay gap, but it will be important to highlight it so that companies can actually put some actual measures around how quickly they'll fix that pay gap, right? Um, So absolutely all for that. Sure, yeah, because I just think everything is being amplified. All the disparities are, there's just more of them. And if we don't Mm -hmm. report, how do we know? And in terms of advice for organisations who are seeking to become more inclusive and welcoming to diverse talent, what would you, what would your advice to them be? What would you suggest? So I would say inclusion and diversity have become buzzwords, right? So uh, companies talk about inclusion and diversity, but actually we, we, those from the black and brown community know or are quite sceptical that this is not a tick box exercise. So this should not be something relegated just to the HR department. This should be something that leaders are accountable for, the the people, the business leaders that are driving forward uh, the the performance, the, the, where the profit and loss happens for the company, they should care about this because at the end of the day, this is something that will impact your bottom line. Your, it will impact your performance in your company. It will impact how much innovation you have within your company, all of which will determine your company's success. So it, it, having diverse teams is a no, no-brainer. So leaders need to be accountable. That's, that, that would be my advice, that they don't just delegate it to HR and forget about it. They need to take personal ownership for it. And the second thing is to make your language much more inclusive when you're hiring. 
so I was going to ask about are... language because I quite often try and will try and refer, but sorry I'll, I'm going to ask you more about language. I mean I think language is really important in in being very explicit about what are you looking for and how are you making it and making the process fair not just that you know we care about diversity because it's very easy to say that as a tick box exercise but actually if you show in your marketing images that you have diverse people in your company if you show through what actions you're taking you know do you have a fair recruitment process do you have blind recruitment and mixed interview panels um that sort of thing shows you you know are you doing ethnicity pay gap reporting that shows you if a company is actually putting their money where their mouth is and and really making sure that those agendas are not just tick box exercises do you think around the language point though is it about Sometimes people will say the wrong thing. I find this all the time in kind of diversity, inclusion, equity type conversations. So people will stumble over the words a bit because they're trying to say the right thing, but they haven't actually had any training about what the right thing is. Or obviously terminology changes from time to time as well. And I'm really interested in in using language and how we can use it in a different way to give people the confidence to actually talk about issues mm-hmm. in a, in, using the appropriate language. Yeah, it's a really good point. Actually, we've got an event coming up to talk specifically about language because it is absolutely right that people are worried about talking about this, right? And when you're worried about something because you're worried that it might lead to more negative consequences than you intended, even if you're coming from a good place, you could accidentally insult somebody, right? That nervousness makes people a little bit nervous uh, about even initiating the conversation. I would say that some of the work that we have been through in the last few months in terms of the environment changing, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement has really brought these things to the fore. We are talking about race for the first time ever. So it actually gives you an opening to say to somebody, you know, look, I might get this wrong, but I want to learn more. And actually setting that level playing field to kind of have that open, honest conversation. And actually people... If people understand that there is positive intent, they're, they're coming, uh, that people are coming with, with um, a view to understanding more, they are, they are generally likely to not take offense. I would also say Google is a hugely powerful source for education, right? I mean, I had to, um, I was invited along to um, speak at the You're Out conference, um, which is uh, a large LGBTQ conference. Now, I'm an ally to that community, but when I was asked to go there, I thought, oh my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get found out because I don't know what these terms mean and don't understand enough about the community. Google, you know, so you Google and educate yourself. So there is some personal accountability to learn. You know, you don't need somebody teaching you everything. You can go and look it up and figure out what the right terminology might be, what might not be the right terminology. And if you're trying and you still get it a bit wrong, people will understand, okay, this person has made an effort, right? That comes through in any, any interaction. If, if someone is really trying and like when you're learning a new language, right? If you're trying and you get the wrong pronunciation, somebody will correct you, but they will laugh along with you, right? And if you're not trying and you're just speaking English loudly, even if they understand you, they'll be like, I can't be bothered with you, right? Yeah. So it's just that, that same confidence that they need to build in order to feel comfortable. It's a, it's a two-way thing. If you've made effort to learn 
what the language, the lingo should be, and you're trying not to cause offense, the other person is more likely to take that on, on board and be more understanding and, and appreciative that you want to learn something that actually doesn't impact you directly. I'm always amazed when allies come on board and are as enthusiastic as I am about changing this. And, you know, because I think, what will you get out of it? But actually, I know what they'll get out of it but because we'll live in a better world, in, in a world where we, you know, truly have a fair system and we appreciate each other for who we are, right? Rather than living in a biased society where we all think bad things of somebody we don't understand. So it's a, it's a much better society if we, have, if we can break down bias and discrimination. So I live in this utopia of, you know, this is moving the world towards a better place. <laughs> it feels good. I defy you not to feel good when these things move along and progress. I defy anybody not to feel good about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are on the last question, Amberly. So what is coming up next for you? What are you excited about? So I am an optimist. So I always start every new year thinking this is going to be the best year ever. So this year, I think we can guarantee it has to be better than last year. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm just looking forward with a lot of optimism at what, um, what things could unfold. So I think we made a lot of progress on the equity um, sphere. And I'm starting to do more and more work in that sphere externally with, uh, with organizations. So I I'm looking forward to where that dialogue will actually progress to. I'm optimistic that it's going in the right direction. Um, I'm also really excited personally about career progression. You know, it's, um, I've hit the glass ceiling uh, over the last few years. And I feel again that the things have started to move in the right direction, that things are changing and people are incorporating some of these better ways of hiring. So I kind of feel personally that I'm in the, in, on the right track I'm getting a, a huge amount of support at the moment with mentors and sponsors and that kind of thing. So again, feeling really positive. Don't know what's around the corner, but certainly feeling positive, looking forward to what 2021 holds. And looking forward to getting back to some semblance of normality, right? Uh, if we can start traveling again without worrying about masks and things towards the end of the year, it would be, it would be success for me. Thank you, thank you so much. Hello, my name is Ines Santos. I am the Associate Editor of Womanfology and I am back to tell you all about our first issue of 2021, Women of Colour. I hope you managed to take some time out over the holidays at the end of what has been an incredibly challenging year for most of us. Without further ado, the stories include Stella Vig is an NHS vascular and general consultant surgeon who is also a clinical director at Croydon University Hospital. She shares her experiences as a woman of color in a surgical career. She also talks to us about the need for the profession to shift away from being male-dominated to becoming multirational, multigender and multi-class. Evie Kulut, who founded Girls Into Coding when she was only 10 years old, shares how she discovered her passion for coding and physical computing in particular and wanted to show other girls that it isn't just for boys. Even free lockdowns couldn't stop her. 
When she was unable to run in-person events, she pivoted to online activities, even posting out kits so her participants could build robots at home. Also, Christina Pearson Rampiri, flight systems engineer at BAE Systems, tells us how working from home during free lockdowns has allowed her to change the way she spends her time for the better. Not only is she able to spend more time with her son, but she's also managed to set up a new small business designing and selling batch bins to challenge stereotypes of what an engineer is expected to look like. Christina also gives her advice on how organizations can address issues of inclusion and diversity. Victoria Cruz, Senior Manager of Global Business Development and Digital Strategy at Sony Music Entertainment, talks about how she's prioritized working for inclusive companies throughout her career. She also shares details of company initiatives empowering employees through a culture where people from a variety of backgrounds feel welcome, heard and respected. In this issue, we'll also be learning about UCL's COVID-19 social study and the work that's being done to track the impacts of COVID on numerous different groups, including BAME women. We'll hear from Cheryl Lloyd, the education program head at the Newfield Foundation, one of the organizations funding this vital research. Do check out our website www.womanphology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all from me. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe. Your feedback's really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now, but join us in the next episode where we'll be hearing about women working in science to mark the International Day of Women and Girls in Science 2021. For now, take care and stay safe. Stay safe.